The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 1st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Many of you are fans of today's modern day business gurus and leadership experts. And if there's one thing they're all saying today, it's that the most important thing for a group or a business or an organization, the most important thing is not making sure that you get all the right things done. The most important thing on top of that is making sure that you have the right people on the team. If you've got the right people on the team who exemplify your values and exemplify the character that you want replicated, that have the passion for what you're doing, then you can help coach, train, equip any of those people to do what you need to get done. The most important thing isn't just getting things done. It's, it's having the right people on the team. The right people on the team can avert so many crises that come down the road. But you don't need Malcolm Gladwell and Simon Sinek and the Harvard Business Review to tell you that. Honestly, you just read your Bibles. In fact, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we, we come headfirst into a, a crisis of leadership that is going to be dealt with by, by having the right people in the right places. Learning the lesson that having the right people on the team means all the world for the health of the organization. But really, it's not just a story about a leadership crisis. As you begin to pull the layers back on what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll see that under the surface of this apparent leadership crisis is actually a crisis of heart. It's a heart crisis. A crisis all too familiar to you and I. And so this morning as we read God's word together and I work to expose what's actually happening Let's take a moment to ask God to do the gracious work that only he can do of exposing our heart in the process that we might be able to respond rightly to him this morning. So let me pray for our time in his word and then we'll jump in. (laughs) Father, we thank you again for this privilege that we have to be gathered together here together that we might by your mercy and the work of your spirit together with your word have ears to hear your voice. That you might do that miraculous work of giving us eyes to see your kindness to us in the person of your son, that our whole heart might find you and your grace towards us in him more satisfying than anything else in the world. For that to be a reality, Lord, we need you to do that miraculous work. And so we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. As we left the story last week in chapter 7, We saw Samuel leading God's people back to the Lord in repentance and then beginning to experience the restoring work of God in their lives. And this is the cycle of life in the period that's known as the Judges. If you've been with us through the series, you might remember that the beginning of 1 Samuel dovetails with the book of Judges, the period in the life of God's people where God would lead his people in, in justice and righteousness through the ministry of these judges that he would raise up. God's people living in the land that he had promised and given them would give themselves over to the the idols and the hopes of the nations around them. And as an act of judgment upon their sin, God would allow them to be oppressed by those very nations. And then as God's people would suffer that judgment, they would begin to cry out to the Lord and God would lead them back to him in repentance and lead them out of that oppression through the ministry of a judge that he would raise up. This has been the cycle over and over and over again. 
And 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 15 tells us that Samuel served as a judge in Israel all the days of his life. In fact, Samuel will be the last of the judges in the life of God's people. He would spend his days leading God's people in justice and righteousness. He would travel throughout the land, chapter 7 says, on a circuit, speaking God's word and leading God's people throughout the country. The rest of the Old Testament in multiple places and in the New Testament as well, if we had the time but we don't have it this morning, will testify to the fact that Samuel was one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. Under his leadership for the rest of his days, Israel would experience a peace they had not known for decades a prosperity they had not known for decades and a security that had been foreign to many of them their entire life. Peace, prosperity, and security. The well-being of God's people during the ministry of Samuel as their judge. And that's important to understand as we pick up the story in chapter eight because chapter eight, verse one, begins this way. A period of time has passed and Samuel has become old. And when he became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. So Samuel, as he would do his circuit, then as he aged, he would settle in Ramah up north in his hometown. And that was his basis of ministry. But as he got older and the needs continued to expand, he appointed his sons to serve as as administrators, so to speak, in areas south of Ramah. So Samuel wasn't traveling around anymore. It's important to understand, and I think commentators argue about this, but I do not believe that Samuel has appointed his sons to be in his position as a judge in the same way that he serves. God has appointed the judges who will lead his people in justice and righteousness. Samuel is sharing and delegating the load of his responsibility at that point to his sons. One other time in the history of God's people in the period of the judges, they tried to confer that role upon a son. It did not go well. Go read the story of Gideon and his son. I don't think that's what Samuel was doing here and that's important and we'll get to it later. But Samuel had put his sons as judges in Beersheba. But verse three says his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So if you've been with us at all through the story, this is beginning to sound very familiar. The story of 1 Samuel started as we met the priest of the day, the high priest, Eli, his sons who showed contempt for the Lord and his sacrifices and began to take for themselves that which was God's and lead God's people astray. They were despicable men, the Bible says. They did not follow in the ways of the Lord. Now here Samuel, his sons, are abusing their position and their power for their own personal gain. They're taking from God's people and not giving. They're using God's people and not serving. This is what's happening in the South. And at the same time, Samuel is still growing old. Samuel is not going to beat death. But here's the thing I want you to catch in the story. Samuel is not on his deathbed at this point. When we read this, we get this idea of an old man lying in his bed, wanting to reach out his hand to bless somebody and pass it on because he's about to die. Samuel is going to continue to judge and serve Israel for over 20 years. He's not dead yet, but he is getting older. He has delegated some of his responsibilities. He does see that the end is coming. He knows like everyone else on the face of the earth, he is not going to cheat death. So what's gonna happen? Israel is enjoying a well-being, a prosperity and a peace that they have not experienced in decades. 
what's going to happen to it? That's a legitimate concern. And it was the concern in the hearts of the leaders. Look at verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, pay attention, look, you're old. It's quite a greeting. It's one thing to know you're old. It's another thing for somebody to come to you and lead with you're old. But you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. They see the writing on the wall. They see that Samuel is aging. He's not going to be with them forever. They see that he's led them well, faithfully, and in a trustworthy manner, that they've enjoyed this well-being of life and this prosperity and security, but his sons are scoundrels. They know that in his transition, which could happen at any day, not just because he's old, but he could just die, that their well-being is at stake. It's a feeling and a reality all too familiar if it just slow down. It's a feeling and a reality familiar to nations. You're going to spend the next 12 months hearing at every turn on TV and the radio and in news the well-being, the prosperity, the security, the identity of our country being threatened and at stake and what's going to happen in a year. It's a reality for organizations like churches. All of a sudden, the well-being that we've experienced at the hand of God's kindness and grace is threatened by something and we can find ourselves wondering, is it going to go away? How are we going to keep it? Who's going to bring it? Who's going to secure it? you know the feeling in your own heart. The prosperity and the peace, the security, the way of life and the well-being that you've experienced at times has come under threat. Where do you go to secure that well-being? How do you respond? Well, Israel's leaders already had a plan. They came to Samuel and said, look, you're old, your sons are no good. Here's the deal. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, I want you to hear this with a few things in mind. Just, just a point of history here. You might remember if you were with us that it was the same group of people, the elders of Israel, who had decided when their peace and when their security was threatened by the Philistines to say, go get the ark. Maybe that thing will save us here. Same group of people. At the same time, I want you to hear the request with a point of irony too. They look at Samuel and say, hey, you're old. Your sons are no good. So here's our solution. Go ahead and put in place a hereditary monarchy that will guarantee the son of every king will rule over us even though we don't actually know what he's going to be like either. But I want you to hear the request too with a, a point of reasonableness to it, all right? We often make different people in the Bible the scapegoats and the villains in certain things. I want you to hear the reasonableness here. Up to this point in the life of Israel, they, they aren't a people that is governed by a centralized government. They are a loose confederation of tribes. They're in a land that God has given them in parts of that land that God has assigned to them by tribe. On every side and in different ways, their peace and their security is threatened by different people. At times throughout their history, they're fighting even with each other. The thing that holds them together is this covenant that they've made with this God who has rescued them out of slavery and brought them to this place. That's the only thing that holds them together. So here they are now experiencing this way of life, living in it for decades under Samuel, seeing it threatened by the Philistines who are still there, the Ammonites who are on the other side of the country, recognizing that Samuel isn't going to be around forever there's a reasonableness to them going how do we continue to make sure we can have the well-being that we're experiencing now faced with the prospect of losing what they so love 
They come up with their own solution. Much like you and I often come up with our own solution when our peace and our prosperity and our sense of security is threatened. And I think Dale Davis says it best that like Israel, our proposals and solutions, they could be completely reasonable, clearly logical, and obviously plausible. And at the same time, utterly godless. And to understand why he says that, you got to keep reading. When they make this request to Samuel, Samuel gets pretty hot about it in verse 6. The thing displeased Samuel. Displeased is a very soft word. That's a very hard word behind displeased. The thing that displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. But here's something that we see. Samuel does here in a response to the thing that displeases him that he gets hot about. And maybe he gets hot about it for personal reasons. I mean, he's the one leading and serving Israel right now as a judge. Their request in some ways isn't a front to him. Maybe he's hot because it's personal, maybe not. But in that moment, with that request and with what rises in his heart, Samuel does what we would have expected the leaders of Israel to do when faced with the threat of their prosperity and security being taken. Samuel goes to the Lord. He prays. The reflexive action of a man whose heart is satisfied in God. And in verses seven through eight, God begins to shed light on the first part of the real problem at hand. The real problem at hand, the problem that's going to be very familiar to you and I, it's a two-headed monster. And in verses seven through eight, God sheds light on the first part. Listen to this. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now this response from the Lord is very rich. Let me just give you three things to consider this morning. The first is that the real problem isn't Samuel. Samuel's not the real problem. When God says they're not rejecting you, God is also saying to Samuel, what they're doing and what they will do is not your fault. It's not your fault, Samuel. I have to imagine that those would be very comforting and very soothing words to Samuel. Samuel has served Israel ever since he was a boy when his mom dropped him off in the tabernacle with Eli. He served faithfully and obediently then as a judge, leading God's people in righteousness and justice. At times in his life, serving as their priest, interceding between them and God, always faithful to speak the word of the Lord to God's people. Back when we read a few minutes ago that his sons were not walking in his ways, that they were using God's people and not serving them, I didn't bust his chops as being a, a bad dad like we did Eli. Eli, we read about earlier in the story, whose sons were abusing God's people, taking from God's people, we talked about Eli's failures as a father. But we didn't say that earlier when I talked about Samuel. It's because as far as the story goes, we have no reason to believe that Samuel was anything but a faithful and loving father to his own sons. Just as he led God's people in justice and righteousness, speaking the word of the Lord to them all of their days, the expectation in the story because of what the author gives us is that Samuel did the exact same thing at home. He spoke God's word to his family. He led them in the ways of righteousness and justice after the Lord. What they're doing, Samuel, is not your fault. They're not rejecting you. Eli 
He partook of his son's sins. He was culpable in it. In fact, even here in the story, when the elders speak of the the sins of Samuel's sons, he compares their sins to Samuel's righteousness. So we have no reason to actually believe that Samuel was a, a deadbeat father, so to speak, to these sons who now sin. And I pointed out in particular, because I know that here this morning there are mothers and there are fathers. There are ministry leaders who serve for countless years in other contexts, all who have experienced the heartbreak of the wandering hearts of those that they love. Those they've given themselves to, those they've sacrificed for, those they've taught the ways of the Lord. And I want you to hear in in God reminding Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. What they're doing right now, how they're behaving and where they're going to go, it's not your fault. I want you to understand that as long as you and I are faithful to lead the people that God gives us in our homes, wherever he puts us, as long as we're faithful to lead them to the Lord, to the righteousness and justice of God as he's shown us in Jesus, their rejection of Jesus is not your fault. It's not your fault. Samuel, they're they're not rejecting you. Samuel was not the problem here. Secondly, having a king is not the problem. Having a king is not sinful in itself. In fact, just to kind of go backwards in the story to kind of bring you up to speed, in Genesis chapter 17, God promised kings to come from Abraham's family. When God promised Abraham that he would make him a nation, that he would give him ancestors, that through them all the nations on the earth would be blessed, he told them that kings would come from that family. In Genesis 35, he made the same promise to Jacob. In Genesis 49, God promised that from Judah's line would be a lion-like ruler of the peoples. But even more clearly, Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can write this down. Moses tells this to the people as he is preparing them to come into the land. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it, that's where they are right now in 1 Samuel. They're in the land that God has promised. They own it, they dwell in it. When you get there and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. See, even God told them before they got to the land, there's going to come a day. I'm going to choose for you a king. It was in the works. It was in the plans. The rest of the verses will clarify what this king is going to be like that God will choose for the people. He's going to be an Israelite. He can't come from the other nations. He's not going to be allowed to amass for himself or take for himself from God's people horses and people and chariots and gold. He's going to have to write the entirety of God's law out in his own handwriting, in his own book, that all of his days he might submit himself to the law of the Lord and lead God's people in righteousness. It specifically says that he's not going to be one who's going to lift his heart up above others. Now there's a humility to the king that God is going to choose in God's time and in God's way for his people. These future kings of God's choosing, they're not going to be like the other kings. They're they're counter kings. Having a king in and of itself is not the problem. In fact, in the book of Judges, the entire refrain is that there was no king, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So even to this point in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the anticipation for a king has been building. One's going to come. Who's it going to be? When and how will he come? It's there. The problem isn't in having a king. 
which means the problem, if it's not Samuel and it's not in having a king, it has to be with the people. The problem is the motive behind their asking for a king. When their prosperity, when their well-being, when their peace, when their security is under threat, God's people are demonstrating that they're still looking for something else and it to supplement God as a means to secure their well-being and their way of life. Just like earlier in the story, when their security and where their well-being was threatened by the Philistines, they looked to the ark to save them. Now, as they're facing the prospect of their very joy and well-being and prosperity of life being threatened again by Samuel's passing and the sin of his sons, now they're looking again to an it, to a king, to be for them all that God had been and promised to be for them. In asking for this king to secure for them that which their heart desires, they are rejecting God as their rightful king. You see, there's two ways to reject God. There's the outright rejection of God for who he is in his existence. And then there's the more religious and subtle version of rejection. It's receiving God to some degree, but not trusting in him completely and fully to be all that he's promised to be for you. That's a form of rejection as well. God's people are happy to take God as their, as their God, as their supplier, as their, as their worship, as the one they worship. But he's supplemental to the thing their heart thinks they need to give them what it is they really want. God is their, their own version of Aflac in this moment. What I think we need to be prosperous and remain prosperous is a king. That's what we need. And in asking for this king to be for them all that God has been and continues to be for them, they are in fact rejecting God as their king. This is what God says. He's always been their king. Since the time of the Exodus, when he rescued them out of slavery and brought them to the mountain, he made a covenant with them that set the, the covenant standards of blessing and curse, gave for them the law that would lead them to the fullness of joy and life in him with, as, their, as their king. He promised to always be with them, to go before them in Deuteronomy 31, to fight their enemies on behalf of them so they had no reason to be afraid. He was their king. He gave them the law. He showed them what it was like to live under his leadership. He would be with them and he would do battles on their behalf. No reason to be afraid. And here they are. Who was the one without any lifting of their own hands toppled the Philistine god Dagon, fall on his face, broke his neck right there? Who did it? Who, just a chapter before in the story, went before them on their behalf and defeated the Philistines before them? God has always been the king he promised to be. He gave them all that they needed to live a life of joy and satisfaction and well-being in him as his people. He's continued to be with them and go before them and do battle on their behalf. But here it is, their prosperity, their security, their well-being is threatened and what are they doing? They're afraid. Something else is gonna have to secure what it is we so desperately want. And God is not surprised. He said it's always been this way. His people always fall to the temptation of believing they have to have something else in addition to him. Something else to, to provide and secure what it is their heart desires. You see, part one of the underlying problem is as old as the story of sin itself. It's common to all of us. 
you and I have the propensity in our hearts to take good things. There's nothing sinful about having a king. There was nothing sinful in that at all. But we have this propensity to take good things and in our heart make them main things. Make them things necessary for joy, necessary for security, necessary for significance, necessary for prosperity. And when our heart takes these good things and makes them main things, they become very destructive things. We have these overriding passions, these cravings that get out of control in our hearts. And we begin to believe that if we don't have these things, if we don't have this thing, then we're not going to be secure. We're not going to be significant. We're not going to be happy. We're not going to be prosperous. We're not going to be peaceful, whatever it may be. These cravings get out of control and good things become main things and end up being destructive things in our heart. And we might acknowledge God to a degree with our mouths, but like Israel, we're really looking at God to supplement that thing we think we have to have. And God plus anything else ultimately equals a rejection of him entirely. It's not your fault, Samuel. They're rejecting me. A new government was not the issue. It was the over-reliance or the faith in that thing above God that was the problem. You see, the request for the king is just the expression of the rejection that's already happened in their heart. And it's another sermon for another time, maybe for another place. But I think it's a helpful reminder over the next 12 months just how easy it is, even as a country, for an over-reliance and a, and a faith in something or someone apart from God to provide for us what only God can. Over the next year, we're going to have to remind each other of this and we'll save it for another time. But part one of the problem is not surprising. It's as old as the story of sin itself. Our sinful hearts look to something other than God to be for us what only God can be. But I think what's more surprising than that, what, what maybe is the most surprising part of the story is God's response. Look at verse nine. This is God speaking now to Samuel. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Here's God's response to their sin. Warn them. Tell them what it's really going to be like and then let them have what they want. Warn them. Don't hold anything back. But then let them have what their heart desires. Again, maybe we'll save it for another sermon for another time, but I hope you understand that even here we're reminded that answered prayers are not always a sign of favor and blessing. God is giving them over to the Desires of their heart, the very thing they're asking for. But these desires, we'll see as we follow the story along, are going to break them. They're going to humble them. In God's grace, it will lead them back to future repentance. But in the meantime, maybe you and I could pray together, learn to encourage one another together, to lean upon the Lord to overrule our misguided hearts. Together, maybe we encourage one another to pray for God's wisdom to overcome our our foolishness. God says, show them, tell them, but then let them have what they want. And so in verses 10 through 18, Samuel gives them a portrait of what it is they're asking for. Look at verse 10. 
Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. That ways is the same word for justice. Here's going to be the justice you can expect from this king. See if you hear any repetition in what he says. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slave. And in that day, verse 18 says, you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do you catch any of his repetition? Your king, who you chose for yourself, will take, 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 So this is what you think is going to provide for you and secure for you your prosperity as a people, your security as a people, the well-being of life you've grown so accustomed to. This is what you think is going to provide that and secure it for you. What's going to cost you? Be ready to pony up all of your rights and all of your freedoms if you think this is what's going to bring you that. In fact, you go that way, you're going to find yourself back in the exact same place where I rescued you before in Egypt. You're going to be his slaves. But verse 19 says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. It's a timely lesson that having the right information, having truth, doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. It's what some sociologists call the education fallacy. As a culture, we tend to think if we just give everybody the right information, then they'll quit making stupid decisions. They made a stupid decision because they didn't have the right information. Well, it's not necessarily true. We know it to be true in the church. Read all the books on the shelves. Listen to all the hottest podcasts, all the greatest preachers telling you all the truth of God's word. Listening to the truth, reading the truth, hearing the truth does not lead necessarily to the transformation of heart. Only loving the truth leads a heart to obey the truth. When the elders of Israel were confronted with the warning of God's word from Samuel, when what they really wanted in their heart was threatened by God's warning. The truth of what was really underneath and what their heart craved came out. They looked at Samuel and they said, no, exclamation point. No, there shall be a king over us. Even if in the earlier moments when they came to Samuel, asking for a king was some kind of veiled request, They're not hiding their demands anymore. 
It is now a resolved demand. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And it's here that we find part two of the underlying problem. It's right here that we come face to face with the other part of the two-headed monster. We want to be like everyone else. Earlier it was, we want a king like the nations. Because you see, all those nations, they've got a tall, handsome, strong man leading them. Look at their prosperity. Look at their military. Look at their security. That must be why they've got it. We can't see the God who's promised himself to us. We can't touch him. What we need is someone like that. Well, when the warning comes from God of what that's going to be like, the underlying reality behind that came out. We don't just want a king like the nations. No, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like everyone else. This is a reality that is true to every human heart. There is an aversion to holiness that all of us are tempted to give way to. See, when I say holiness, you naturally think of behavior. Whatever that picture is in your mind, moral behavior that is aligned with what God would want, and that's a part of it. But holy, as a a word and as a concept, it means to be called out from something to something else. It means to be taken from one place and set apart. That's what holy means. God had already told his people that you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. I have called you to myself, set you apart, called you out from the nations. Deuteronomy 14, 2 says, you are a people holy to the Lord and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth that through his people called out to be with him and like him through them, he might be a blessing to the nations. God had called his people to be like him, which means they are to be unlike the nations. That through them, God might bless the nations around them. Their lives were meant to be a reflection of something of God's nature and loving rule. Through decisions that they made, their ways of thinking, their patterns of behavior, conforming to the ways of joy that God has given them in in his law. They were to reflect something of God's character to the nations. But now here's the problem. They don't want to be different than the nations anymore. They want to live according to the standards of the nations. They don't want to be distinct anymore living according to God's word. They want to conform to the nations, not be different. They're not just rejecting God as their king. Israel is rejecting their identity as God's people. Friends, it's worth considering this morning how just like Israel, our own hearts can grow just as averse to holiness. Our own hearts can so easily want to reject our identity as God's people. I mean, if you're willing to, just consider for a moment how badly we often want to look like the world around us. We don't want to be distinct in our way of thinking, in our way of speaking, in our way of relating to each other and what brings us delight and joy. If you're willing, just think for a moment how badly we want to live by the standards set by the world around us and not by the standards and definitions that God sets for us in his word. 
We want the world around us to define for us what success looks like, what fruitfulness looks like, what faithfulness looks like, what beauty looks like, what prosperity looks like, what significance looks like. If you're willing, just think for a moment how easy it is for our own hearts to look to the voice of the world around us to set our identity for us rather than the voice of the Lord. Friends, you and I, like Israel, we have been given an identity by God on this side of the cross. You and I have been redeemed by the grace of God to reflect something of his glory and his grace, his righteousness, life under his rule to a watching world. It's the very thing Peter reminded the church in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but, how, but now you have received mercy. I love the way that Brian Chappell puts it in a foreword that he wrote to a, a book called Preaching to a Post-Everything World. Chappell said, you and I as, as a church, we're called to be mirrors of God's glory by his grace. He goes on to say, this grace motivates us to reflect God's mercy for the poor, to reflect his care for his creation, to reflect his zeal for justice, to reflect his delight in beauty, to reflect his love of the unlovely, to reflect his dignifying all kinds of work that apply his gifts, to reflect his treasuring of chastity outside of marriage, to reflect his blessing of fidelity in marriage, to reflect his tenderness towards the least of these, and to reflect his love for the lost who have not yet found their home in him. Friends, as you read 1 Samuel chapter 8 this week, it's worth considering for God's glory and our joy as his people. Just how badly do you want to look like everyone else? It's a question the church at large has to wrestle with. It's a question that God's people individually have to wrestle with. What voices, what standards are defining success and prosperity and well-being for you? How quickly do you look to an it, a king, to provide for you what only God can? Friends, here's the thing, whatever it is that we depend upon to provide these things for us, it becomes our king. This is what God was telling his people. Whatever it is that you're gonna look to to provide for you the well-being, the prosperity, the significance, the identity, the, the, the peacefulness that you so desperately want, whatever it is you look to to provide that for you, that is your king and here's the deal, you're gonna be its slave. That's the way it works. Every heart in this room has a king. And that king either gives or he takes. So Samuel relayed all that God had said to the people. Samuel takes all that they have said now in their rejection of God back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 22, obey their voice and give them what they want. Let them have what it is they think will give them the only thing that I can. And so Samuel looked at the men of Israel and he said, go, every man to his city. And here's the thing, you're left waiting. Chapter eight doesn't answer the questions. Well, who's gonna be king? What's gonna happen? Are they gonna be secure? Are they gonna be prosperous? 
Chapter 8 leaves all the questions unanswered. That's pretty fitting for Advent. It's pretty fitting for the season of longing and anticipating and desiring and looking forward to what God has promised. But here's the thing, I'll I'll let you in, a sneak peek on the story. In less than two full generations, I just did three, I meant to do two. Three kings, two generations. In less than two full generations, Israel is going to experience the fullness of what God had warned them about. When we pick the story back up in the beginning of the year, you're going to meet Saul. Saul's name literally means asked for. He is going to be the first of the kings that Israel asked for. They pick him because he's tall. They pick him because he's handsome. He's not particularly bright. And his story gets pretty tragic. But in two generations, you're going to meet a king named Solomon, David's son, who's going to spend 13 years building a palace for his own pleasure. To build that palace, he is going to tax God's people heavily. He's going to take their land. He's going to take their animals. He's going to take their sons. He's going to take their daughters. He's going to take everything that was theirs for his own pleasure. And when he dies, the elders of Israel are going to go to his son, Rehoboam, and they're going to say, your father made our yoke heavy. The very thing that God had said would happen. And they look at Rehoboam and they say, therefore, lighten the hard service and we'll serve you. And do you know what Rehoboam says? My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. It's a great picture. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'm going to add to your yoke. God would give them exactly what they asked for in rejecting him. And from that point forward, they are going to long for the king that God had promised to give them. Every generation is going to anticipate the king that God said he would give his people. One who would be unlike the kings of the nations. One who would not take from his people but give. One who would not lift himself up but serve. One who would not use for his own devices and his own pleasures. A king who wouldn't act for his own interests but for the glory of the Lord and the good of his people. When is the king going to come who is altogether different from all the other kings that we set our hearts on? See, friends, the good news of the Advent season is that there is indeed a king worth having, one that God has indeed provided just as he promised, and he he gave it in his son. A son who, unlike Eli's sons and unlike Samuel's sons, would be a faithful son and a trustworthy son. A son who would come not to establish his own religion, but to establish an eternal kingdom. See, when Jesus would stand before the powers of his day and be asked, are you the king of the Jews? Do you know how he'd answer? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And for all who could hear what he was saying, Jesus was declaring that he is the king that God has promised who is unlike all the kings of the nations. He is not a king from this world. His justice is altogether different from every other king imaginable. He doesn't take, he gives, he doesn't use, he serves. In fact, he had already told them that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve to serve those in his 
kingdom in the ultimate way to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the king who would give his own life on the cross, dying in the place of those that he came to serve, that those who would receive him as their king, believe in him as their king, would be freed from the guilt of their sin. This is the king that serves the least of these in his kingdom and would give eternal life to all who would trust in him. If you've been reading CBR with us, our community Bible reading, you spent this week reading the manifesto of life in this kingdom. Matthew chapter five, six, seven, and eight, Jesus lays out life in his kingdom, life with him as king, life in his gracious rule and reign. Friends, if you will submit to Jesus as your king, then you too will enter into the eternal kingdom of God and share with this king forever. Share with him for all of eternity the manifold blessings of God, treasures that lie unlike other kings, treasures unlike the ones the world promises cannot be corrupted, cannot be destroyed. If you'll stick with us for the next few weeks, this Advent season, we're gonna jump over to the Gospels and we're gonna take a look at different portraits of this very unexpected king. What's he like? What's life in his kingdom like? But the question for each of us this morning as we consider 1 Samuel chapter eight is where are you going to turn for peace, security, prosperity, well-being, joy? How can you be confident that if you look to this king that God has provided that he will indeed care for you, provide for you, protect you. Friends, you and I have a much longer history of God's faithfulness to us than Israel ever had. More importantly, we actually have the cross. See, it's on the cross that we're reminded that there is no king who can give more to his people than God already has. One writer said that it's on the cross that God proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he and he alone is a king worth trusting with everything. See, in Jesus' day, even some of his own people would stand before the others and say, we have no king but Caesar. All that they could trust in, all that their hearts could rely upon, all that they could look to for prosperity and peace and well-being is what they could see in front of them. But Peter said, you and I now live by faith in an entirely different kingdom. And though we haven't seen our king, we love him. Don't we don't now see him, we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. 1 Samuel chapter eight reminds us, friends, that your heart has a king, a king that it serves. And it requires you to answer the question, who will be your king? Whose voice is going to shape your identity? Whose words are going to set the standards for your life? What are you looking to for peace and prosperity and significance and well-being and joy? Are you looking at something that ultimately can only disappoint and lead to death? Or are you looking to the only one that can bring eternal life? This morning, friends, as we prepare to respond to God's word, we're going to prepare to receive communion for all who have believed upon Jesus as king, repented of their sins, put their hope, their faith for all they are in him. I want to encourage you in the next couple of minutes as we prepare to set your heart on your king, 
the one who held nothing back to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness, the one who has promised to carry you steadily into the kingdom of his eternal grace. As you prepare to take that bread, remembering his body broken, his blood shed in your place for your sins, this is your king, the one that God has provided, the one that he has promised, the one who remains steadfast and faithful. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. I just would want to ask you one thing. Are you, are you done trusting in hollow kings? Are you done trusting in empty things? Things that can only promise but disappoint. Things that ultimately lead to death. Friends, this morning, God would call you to turn to his son as your king. To receive him as your king. To hear his voice shape your identity. To hear his word shape the direction for your life. The fullness of life and joy in him. If you would only repent of your sins and turn to him. The question we all have to deal with this morning is who is going to be your king? One that gives or one that takes? One that leads to death or the one that leads to eternal life? We pray for us and then we're going to respond together. Father, we thank you this morning that you have reminded us again in your word, even from stories that seem so far and so distant, that you have never stopped being for us all that you promised and all that we need. This morning, you know what every heart in here needs to see your son, to have eyes to see your son as king, as the one who rules and reigns over our hearts, as the one who we're free to serve with joy and delight, not out of duty and despair, the one that leads to fullness of life and joy, who secures for us the well-being of life and the significance and the prosperity and the security for all of eternity that only you can secure. Lord, help us to see that in such a way that we're willing to see and cast away all the hollow kings our heart chases after and turn only to you again. Lord, we want to know the joy that comes from being satisfied in you for all that you are. We ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.